Hey, y'all, I wanted to take a second before we get into this episode to remind you that the show is also available on YouTube. And starting from episode number 101, it's all in 4K. I'm trying to make the best video podcast I can, so definitely check it out and subscribe to the channel if you haven't already. Go to youtube.com slash at progressionspod or hit the link in the show notes. If you're not getting enough progressions and you want to get even more thoughts on creativity, productivity, and growth in music, then you should sign up for my newsletter. You'll find a brief article in each monthly edition as well as updates on progressions and myself. I'm also sharing some workflow hacks and links to stuff that I found interesting or helpful. So it should be fun. If you want to stay up to date on the latest and get all the bonus stuff, go to travisferencecom slash subscribe or click the link in the show notes. Hey, welcome to Progression, Success in the Music Industry. I'm your host, Travis Ference, and this is episode number 43. Great episode today with lots of insights on mastering, listening, and taking the leap to start your own business. But first, I was on a run the other week, and a decent-sized truck was coming towards me. I run on the oncoming side of the road. Safety first, people, come on. Anyway, as this truck's rear bumper passed me, that's when I got blasted with a hefty gust of wind. There was just so much energy traveling behind that truck from all the air particles it displaced as it moved forward. And it made me think about building momentum in your career, because, you know, these are the things that pop into my mind on my run. But think about it. It's very similar. Getting a 13-ton truck up to a decent speed takes a lot of work. You've got to have a well-built and powerful engine driving you forward. And even with that, it takes time to get up to speed. We've all been behind a truck at a stoplight, right? Sometimes you barely get through the light by the time it actually gets going. But once it's moving, that thing is hard to stop. And like I said, I don't think that all of this is much different from a career. To build momentum, the first thing you need to do is build out your engine, the thing that is going to get you moving in the first place. And I think a long, successful career is built on a couple key components. One is consistency. You need to be constantly taking action that will move you towards your career goals. And like I've said on this show a hundred times before, it doesn't have to be massive action. Consistent, small, but targeted action will probably get you there faster than searching for the one big move. And I'm no mechanic. I mean, not even close at all. But I'm pretty sure that an efficient and powerful engine is more based on consistent movement of all the various parts than it is on some drastic move to the extremes. So next up on the key components to your engine is habits. Sure, having good habits is a form of consistency, you can make that argument, but I think the two are important enough and different enough to be included together. See, consistency is more of the mindset or the philosophy that should drive your actions. Habits are more like the actions themselves. So the main benefit of habits is that a habit becomes automatic. So taking a unique one-off action to further your career is never going to be a habit. But you could build a habit out of identifying a unique one-off action every morning and then doing it. Any way that we can create automatic habits out of things that will consistently move the needle forward on our career is something that we have got to do. Because let's be real with ourselves. If people had the self-motivation required to easily achieve our goals, we'd all be retired by 35. So anytime you can remove motivation from the process and turn it into an automatic occurrence, the more likely you will be to continue that thing. So now that we have an engine built out, we need to talk about driving this thing. You need to know where you're going 
and you have to keep the long game in mind. When you're actually driving somewhere, you don't get caught up on where the RPM needle is or how the engine is firing. You trust that the vehicle is working. So then why would you constantly be analyzing whether your daily practice or your client outreach is making you clear and immediate gains? You know all of these consistent daily moves are compounding to get you to your end goal. You can't doubt that. You have to trust that your engine is doing its work and that you're heading where you want to go. And you don't drive a truck by looking 10 feet in front of you. You're always scanning several hundred feet out and thinking about when the next turn is. That's the way you have to look at a career. You have got to keep your eyes out in front looking for future opportunities or potential hazards. Both are equally important. So once you've got your engine going and you're scanning the road ahead with your GPS all set, all you have to do now is enjoy the ride. You can't be on this journey and not enjoy it. That's the most important part. If it's not fun, if you aren't taking it all in, then you're missing the point. You're working in music. It doesn't get much better than this. You know, I'm not going to lie. This analogy feels like nearly the cheesiest one I've come up with yet. But you know, I went for it anyway. So if you're a longtime listener of this show, then a lot of the things I just said are probably not new to you. I just packaged them up to look like a truck this time. Hopefully some version of these ideas clicked with you and you've tried to pick your favorite bits out of these intros to build something that works for you. Because that's the point. It's not for me to tell you what to do. It's to give you different tools and ideas that you can pick and choose from while you build your career and while you define what success is for yourself. Today's guest is mastering engineer and violinist Eric Boulanger. Eric started his career at the Mastering Lab as a protege to the legendary Doug Sachs. While there, he was involved in designing and building their vinyl mastering location in Ojai, California, as well as working with Apple to develop the Mastered for iTunes protocol. Eric would then become the first engineer to ever do a Mastered for iTunes release. In 2015, Eric opened his own facility in Los Angeles called The Bakery, and since then it has grown to become a go-to mastering house in the industry. Some of his credits include names like Diana Krall, Green Day, Colby Calais, Weezer, Hozier, and Andrea Bocelli. Now, his mastering accolades may seem to overshadow his violin career, but I assure you that's not true. Despite a busy mastering schedule, Eric is still actively involved in playing on sessions for various film and television scores. And anybody familiar with that world knows that that is not an easy gig to get. So welcome to the show, Eric Boulanger. Hey, Eric, how's it going, man? Hey, Travis. Thanks for having me. Thanks for coming on a Saturday and uh, hanging out. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> Beautiful day out today, too. <laughs> yeah, that's why we engineers stay inside. We <laughs> Exactly, yeah. Have to take vitamin D supplements. Uh, but how's how's work been for you lately? Are you getting back into attended sessions in the post-pandemic world? Yeah, we, we're slowly getting back into attended sessions, which is great to finally have that normalcy returning. Um, specifically, I guess it was the start of June when the Sony lot started looking a little bit more normal with more people getting back to work and also, you know, having the front door open, being able to park visitors, all that sort of thing. So... It's exciting to slowly start coming back. And uh, we've, uh, even before that point, without people showing up, we were rather busy. So, um, and it's picking up even more. We're definitely starting to see the the start of the wave of everybody who was in quarantine who were were writing up a storm and recording. (laughs) And uh, I think think that wave is going to probably be about a year long of, 
similar sort of albums because uh, you know all the big studios are getting booked up right now too. So by the time they get recorded and mixed, uh, I think we're gonna be riding this wave for a while. Well, that's a good wave to ride. You know, it's yeah. good. It's good to be busy. <laughs> How many attended sessions do you have? I mean, me personally, I've never had the urge to go to a mastering session, but do you do a lot of them? Uh, yeah, definitely a lot of them. And of course, that's the whole reason why I even opened the bakery on the Sony a lot. I wanted, you know, a destination for people. And so right. no coincidence that uh, when I did open up there, everyone suddenly wanted to go. You know, they want to see the Ghostbusters car and whatnot. <laughs> so it's it's really... <laughs> exciting in that regard and it's great um you know also if it's not working being able to bring people over to the scoring stage and show them that and all the various facilities like the adr and folly stages and the dub stages so you know it's it's just like disneyland for me for the most part but um (laughs) if i were to give you a number i'd say uh, okay let's only talk about pre-pandemic but then i would say Probably a good 75% of my sessions are actually attended. I mean, it's it's a high number. And of course, it's a funny thing because, you know, in a mastering session, I'm the only one doing the work. Right. That part doesn't change. It's not like you attend and you're really doing something. But, you know, for me, it's invaluable because we're still making music. It's, you know, I'm not a robot either. So I like having people to bounce (laughs) things off of. And, you know, every now and then, too, like you'll think you're doing the best thing ever and you turn around and you just see that look on the client's face and you're like, uh-oh. And then you're like, what are you hearing? And then they'll say one thing where it's like, you know, you totally were just missing that point and then it all clicks and then everything's perfect, you know? And so you you wouldn't have been able to get, you, you don't get the look when, uh, you know, you're not attended. And True. in those cases, you know, there's, it's, Email can really be a foe sometimes because, you know, of course, you don't hear people's um, inflection or intention and what they're saying. So it can sound a little bitchy at times. And, uh, you know, the people expect to send their stuff off to mastering and they get it back. And there's so many people who, if it's not what they wanted, like immediately, they're just like, oh, this isn't going to work. I'm going somewhere else. And it's like, have you ever been to a rehearsal before? Like, if, if that happened to, like, every single musician on stage, no one would have a gig. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's true. There's, like, you lose... When you're in a room with somebody, you get... You know, one thing you get is you get their physical reaction, you know, and you can see that they're enjoying it. And even if the first thing out of their mouth is, like, the vocal's too compressed or, or whatever it is, at least you saw that they loved it. And sometimes I think in like email and text communication, like people skip the, uh, sounds great. Can we address this and this? They just go straight to like, <laughs> yeah, we need right. to fix this, fix that, fix this. And you're like, did you like it? You didn't say you liked it. <laughs> oh yeah, it's great. <laughs> it's, but, uh, well, that's cool, man. I always go back to history first and, you know, start at the beginning, but I wanted to start for you when you transitioned into working at the mastering lab, obviously we met because you were like the first intern at Capital. I don't yeah, know how you managed and- that. Uh, me neither. If I had to do it twice, I don't think I could. But it did involve calling Paula, I know, 12 times because I called four days in a row, three times a day. And on the 12th call, you know, you, you remember the shark, uh, David Stern, oh, who yes. was, you know, in the office at the time. So he was always fielding the phone calls. And apparently he went into the office that night to Paula and he said, 
it's the kid again. For the love of God, can you take the call? <laughs> and she did. <laughs> and then I was like, hey, Paula, I've got my spring break. I want to come out. Um, you know, college student, broke. I had like free Southwest miles. <laughs> and uh, I was like, I've got my spring break. I want to come out to interview to be your intern. And she was like, you know, I didn't even consider the possibility that there were no interns. <laughs> and she was just like, yeah, yeah, okay, yeah. And then I just flew out, called her like on Monday, and she's like, right, sure, come in tomorrow. <laughs> I think she was more confused than I was, but it worked out. <laughs> were you doing that to other studios, or like Capital was the place you wanted to go to? Uh, well, originally, before... The phone call story, um, I had visited, I had my uh, uncles who lived out here. And so I just used the summer uh, to visit out in LA. And so I was doing that to every studio then, but I got invited over to Capitol through this massive amount of begging people. And that's how I met Paula. And she made the mistake of giving me her card. And yeah, <laughs> and the rest is history. <laughs> But I don't know, maybe my memory doesn't serve me right, but you you weren't there that long before you went to the Mastering Lab. Or maybe I wasn't there that long before you went to the Mastering Lab. Maybe that's what it is. Um, well, I was there the summer before. I went back. I think probably what you're thinking of is I disappeared, and I disappeared because I finished up my last year of school. And then ah. I came back out the next summer, well, you know, May, whatever it is, um, when I graduated, and then that's when I got the job with Mastering Lab. Got it. Okay, yeah. I gotcha, I gotcha. So, you know, a lot of people that listen to this show are engineers and, and producers, and they're fairly familiar with, like... <laughs> if they're not, then you've really got weird choice in podcasts. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. <laughs> uh, they're, anyway, they're, they're, they're fairly familiar with, like, the hierarchy of a recording studio, but... When you go to a mastering studio, like a specific mastering facility, what's the path like there? Like, where did you start when you went to the mastering lab? Um, well, my specific path at Doug's was uh, really interesting because, well, I first started as kind of a jack-of-all-trades sort of thing. I was half tech and half his assistant. So I would assist Doug in the sessions. You know, that's where I really got the most amount of... Um, you know, just listening, training, just hearing things that don't suck. Um, and uh, then I would also do all the tech work. And of course, that workload increased when Doug decided to bring back vinyl and I built the vinyl room. And that was a crazy experience because, I mean, you know, our age, vinyl was already out of stores by the time we were buying music. I mean, one of my favorite yeah. times uh, with Doug was it was late at night. He came in and he's like, what are you doing here? I'm like, building the vinyl studio. What do you think? And he's like, well, let's go shoot some pool. And uh, however the conversation came up, he was saying something. And I was like, Doug, you know, when you're like in sixth grade and you have some allowance money and you go out and you buy a record because it's like the cool thing to do with your friends. He's like, yeah. I'm like, do you know what I bought? And he starts rattling off bands and trying to guess like, you know, the actual album that I bought. I'm like, Doug, you're missing the point here. I bought a CD. And he's like, no, no way. I'm like, yes, <laughs> they were gone by then. I'm like, I've never even bought a vinyl record yet. And I'm like, literally was building a lathe before I had bought a record, which is 
I think rather ironic. <laughs> that is pretty, yeah, it's pretty good. It's pretty good. Yeah. <laughs> How did the, the vinyl studio come about? People start seeing the writing on the wall that vinyl was coming back? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it was just, it started be the, the thing that was eating at Doug's side was the fact that it started turning into every album that we were doing, it's particularly the label work, where we kept on getting asked for a vinyl cutting master, because of course at that time we weren't cutting, so it would have to cut somewhere else. And, you know, Doug was definitely the foremost expert cutter, like literally defines the craft. And it just started, you know, eating at his soul. And he's like, that's it. We're bringing him back. I can't take this crap anymore, you know? <laughs> and so uh, that's the reason. And so, I mean, it was strictly just a direct result of the resurgence. That's it. Okay, great. And that was that was in Ojai and Normal Mastering Lab was in Hollywood, right? Right. So, uh, of course, the lays and everything were in Hollywood. And Doug had taken them out in 2000. Um, and when they were taken out, unfortunately, they were taken out in a way and method where no one expected them to go back together. So it wasn't pretty when they came out of storage, you know. Uh, a lot of things had to be repaired. A lot, you know, it, it was a real mess. And not to mention, we put together a different system than what had existed in Hollywood anyway, for some of these reasons. And um, so fast forward to 2008, that's when we closed Hollywood and only operated out of Ojai. And then 2009 was when we started to put the, the vinyl room together. So it seemed like it was related. It really wasn't. You mentioned uh, listening training. And I think that that's like a really important thing to talk about for like young engineers or even young producers, like learning to listen. Like what was that experience like? Did Doug kind of say, hey, you know, listen like this or listen intently? Like how did you, quote, learn to listen? Um, well, it's really a very simple thing. And, you know, a lot of young engineers just don't get this either. And nor do they really find the value in it. But like, you know, literally learning how to listen was just spending every day in the room with Doug, shutting up and listening. Because the way you learn how to listen, no one's you're not going to read a book and figure out how to do that. Like those neurons aren't no. going to connect in that fashion. So it's just continued experience and surrounding yourself, just like if you're an instrumentalist or a musician, you know, you surround yourself with better players and the, the music that you want to be involved with. And it's like osmosis. Finally, things start kicking in. Um, so it's the same thing in that regard. And of course, uh, you know, the learning how to listen and everything is then the conversations you have with your mentor, like Doug and I would, it wasn't like, okay, classroom time, Eric, this is how you should listen to this, this song or something. No, it was, we were in the middle of work and I would hear something that I wouldn't like. And it was the discussion between the two of us or something like that, where, you start gaining an appreciation of, okay, maybe I'm not full of it. Now I'm starting to catch on to things. You know, and it's a very slow process that, I mean, you literally just have to be in the room every day. And oh, yeah. um, that's that. Yeah, well, I mean, being in a position where you can communicate and like go back and forth with somebody of that level, 
I think also kind of, it kind of helps. Oh, yeah. But there's got to be like a level of taste as well. Like first you have to kind of develop what you think sounds good as well as what actually does technically sound good. Otherwise that's, you know, where everybody gets their unique sound from is your taste. Well, yeah, Match exactly. with your I mean, skills. Well, that's why, you know, us engineers, we're not processes. That's what I was referring to earlier about, you know, not being a robot, you know, it's go master with Lander if you think that's the case, you know, it's, uh, we are musicians in a sense. And, th you know, this is all because it's the realm of subjectivity and, you know, there is no right or wrong. So all it is is taste. <laughs> yeah. Oh, it, it completely. Have you, uh, how often do you, you do no EQ? Do you, do you run into that a lot where something is just sitting really nicely? Oh yeah. Um, actually a good amount, but you know, that's also a thing that it's kind of hard to relate to when I speak with students, especially or younger engineers. It's like, it's very easy to say if it takes nothing, do nothing. It's actually hard to implement because people have this urge to want to like do something when you don't need to. But at the same extent, in my position at, you know, my point in my career and my studio, who walks in my door is going to be very different than the gig that the student, first gig that student's going to get, that's probably going to need the kitchen sink thrown at it. You know, you don't have oh, yeah. like the Al Schmitz and Joe Zooks and Val Garays of this world walking through being like, oh, hey, kid, can you master my record? Like, uh, <laughs> doesn't exactly happen. So, you know, it, it's it's hard to to relate in that way, but you can gain the appreciation of, um, you know, the technique involved, which is if it takes nothing, do nothing. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. You, you definitely have to, you have to have that level of client. And then you also have to go through that journey of like overdoing a million things on those projects that need a lot of help, you know, when you're young and when you're new. And then eventually you just need the wisdom to know that you don't have to do something to, uh, you know, uh, cement your purpose and oh in yeah the chain, and you know? <laughs> you know it can be it can be just as stressful when you do have like a talk guy like that coming in and you know every now and then there's a black sheep of a song where i don't know maybe they woke up on the wrong side of the bed or something and it's just you know messed up and you know it and it's equally as intimidating when you have to like muscle it into place and you're like am i missing something here like this doesn't normally happen. And then every single time that I've ended up doing that, you know, I would get the call from like Al and he'd be like, oh, what the hell did you do? You saved my ass. Thank you. <laughs> and it's like, <laughs> 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 because I've also gotten the other call too. What the hell did oh, you do yeah. to my record? Oh, shit. <laughs> uh, let's see. I wanted to go, you were doing a lot of technical work stuff and engineering type things. Where were you going to school? Were you studying engineering? You're studying music. Yeah. So, um, I'd like to say that I had a, uh, start of life crisis because I had been studying, um, <laughs> music like my whole life, well, specifically violin, uh, doing Juilliard and everything. And when it came that time for college, like, of course I had auditioned for all the conservatories and got in and whatnot. And, I just didn't want to continue doing that because I had been doing it for years already. It's like, how much more theory class could you possibly take? It, it was just like the same thing. So I just decided that I would go to a university instead so that I could study music and something else. That was my initial plan. 
Of course, since my grades in high school also sucked, the only way I was getting into any school was with the violin. And so I ended up going to Carnegie Mellon um, because they accepted me in as a violinist. Yeah, well, totally got in the back door as far as I'm concerned. And within probably the first month of being there, I ended up transferring into the engineering school because I just fell in love with a, a happened to be like my my freshman dorm. Most people uh, there, they were all engineers. And so, you know, I did electrical engineering 101. And I was like, oh, this is so for me because I want to be in the recording studio. So, you know, I'm like, I know the music end better than anyone in the recording studio anyway. I'll bite off the other end of the spectrum, which was biting off a little more than I could chew. But um, (laughs) so I transferred in and it was kind of a funny story when uh, I did so because the dean of the music school like was so pissed off at me. And he was like, do you know how many violinists we accepted this year? I'm like, no. He's like, two. So you're trying to tell me that I'm losing half of my freshman class already. I'm like, sorry? And he's like, going nuts about the orchestra and everything. I was like, okay, fine. I'll make you a deal. I was like, I promise on my word, I will play the Philharmonic every single concert. I will still take it and I'll make it work with my schedule. And he's like, Okay. And so I was actually the only non-major in the orchestra. And then, of course, come like, I'd say junior year, because their Philharmonic was a rather rigorous schedule built all around like the performances. So it would be something like a class that's like three or four times a day in a week that's three hours long for your rehearsal but it only happens like one week out of the month or something leading up to the performance, right? Uh But if you're trying to schedule classes, like any engineering class is of course gonna be in the middle of the day. And how are you gonna do that with a three hour block that could potentially be Monday through Thursday, even if it's only one week out of uh, the month, it became impossible. And so I concocted a new deal and I set Sat last chair, first violin, just never did seating auditions or anything. I was like, I'll come in, sit last chair, don't care. And I'll just come in for like the last few rehearsals. Now, this was all under the guise of the fact that I I had to schedule classes. But the the real thing was there wasn't one person in that Philharmonic who had to rehearse three hours a day, four days in a row to play what we were playing. But it was just the fact that it was like the class and your credit and, you know, the whole point of being in conservatory. Yeah, that's amazing. That's so good. (laughs) If you're enjoying this episode, then please consider pulling your phone out, tapping that share button and sending this to one person that you think would enjoy it. Obviously, it would be huge for me, but it could be even more game-changing for that person. You just never know what can inspire or help someone else out. I want to take a second to tell you about Secret Sonics, a podcast by Ben Wallach and Carl Bonner. Secret Sonics is one of my favorite shows, and it's now double amazing with the addition of Carl Bonner as a co-host. Ben and Carl have teamed up to discuss the real-world trials and triumphs of music production. They cover it all from mixing and studio tricks to branding and mindsets. If you're a fan of progressions, you'll be a fan of Secret Sonics. Check it out wherever you listen to podcasts or hit the link in the show notes. Well, I, I was going to ask you later about your violin and your musical start. How long did you play violin? When did you start? When I was three. <laughs> so you played, you must have played in like orchestras and studied. And so your Juilliard experience was not a college experience. That was, it's that was pre-college, a, a yeah. youth program? Yeah. Oh, well, wow. Literally called pre-college. 
It's not a very <laughs> fancy name, but I didn't come up with it. That's cool. So then were you a little musicked out when you decided to do normal engineering or were you still going to pursue music despite going to normal university? I was, I was musicked out in uh, the sense of the scholastic side of things. That was right. just annoying. I love playing gigs. Actually being able to play and work with the real people and do all of that. Like, I was already like, that's where my head was. And so, you know, um, had I not done engineering or anything, I probably would have just moved to L.A. and pursued professional music right away just because it was like, would you rather be at college on a NCAA team that now might pay you, or do you want to go straight into the NBA? <laughs> you go to the NBA. Yeah. Well, speaking of, when did you start doing LA sessions? As soon as you got here, did you start stepping into that world? Uh, actually, no, not as soon as I got here because I was so um, focused and serious on uh, specifically engineering and working for Doug. You know, first my capital experience, then working for Doug. And, you know, just getting my career as an engineer off the ground. That was really 110% my focus. And right. then I really started missing playing. So I started playing some, like, local groups and stuff like that. And like anything, gigs start to snowball. And then I was a bit more comfortable engineering and had more of a schedule with, you know, clients coming in and everything. And, you know, I was just more situated to be able to juggle two things. And then that's when I really started pursuing playing more sessions and whatnot. And when I was at the mastering lab, even for a few years, I had what I called the, the crash pad. And uh, I had a little crash pad in Franklin Village, one room with a roommate, tiny place. And uh, it was just because, you know, the traffic was of course, getting worse and worse and worse. So what I would do is I had this second little apartment. Um, so I would travel to Hollywood at like, you know, 11 or 12 that, the night before, literally crash there, wake up, drive to the gig, play the gig, and then drive back to Ojai and continue mastering and whatnot. So I actually had two places at one point just so I could kind of facilitate juggling so much. Well, I mean, that makes sense. I mean, for people that don't live in LA, Ojai's, uh, that it's, it's just far. far enough that you you don't want to drive that after work or before work, especially going into town with everybody oh, driving yeah. that direction. It is beautiful over there, though. But Yeah, but having to make that drive under stress, too. There was once, I, when it crossed the line for me, was I remember randomly waking up earlier than usual, like something like five o'clock or whatever. And I was like, you know what? I'm just going to get on the road. I'll get my coffee all nice. And I was living in Ventura, so it wasn't quite as far as Ojai, but I had a, a movie score at Warner Brothers that I had to get to, which is in Burbank. And so you go through all the thickest of traffic. And I left super early. Like this was for, I think, a 10 o'clock downbeat. And, you know, I'm at the coffee shop just after five. And there were four accidents on the 101 that day where the freeway was shut down. And I walked onto the scoring stage at 9.57 a.m. 
sweating bullets, Jess, and like the amount of rage and like anxiety of sitting in four hours of traffic trying to get to a gig and not knowing if I would oh even make it at that point. And then, you know, having to park in the structure and get through security, walk across the lot, the whole thing. Let me tell you, that is not the state you want to be in when you sit down in a chair and now have to sight read. It was like my hands were like shaking. <laughs> it's probably a nice like emotional opening sequence as well. <laughs> oh, yeah, totally. Like, it, uh, I, I hope we started You're with You're like Trello ready for a horror something. movie. Yeah, exactly. Get a rom-com. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, the, the funny part was after that gig, that's when I was like, you know what? I'm pushing off mastering today. I'm going to meet up with a friend. And I went down to Bird's in Franklin Village, and I was sitting there, and yep. I was like, you know what? I'm going to look to see if there's any places available around here. This, this, is, this would avoid this problem. And that's how it happened. Amazing. That's good. We've gone in, in just spiraling, confusing circles here. So oh. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put you this back on track. You did pick a mastering with, engineer uh, to speak to. <laughs> I know. <laughs> Who plays violin. I mean, those two things are hard to tie together without some strange, <laughs> yeah, like, <right>. you know. <laughs> uh, but uh, let's talk, before we go to the bakery and what it's like to build your own business like that, is there any, like, anything that you took away from working with Doug and everybody at the Mastering Lab that was like, a pinnacle, like, moment of knowledge? Any key insight? One-liners? Pinnacle uh, key thing of knowledge. Well, (laughs) it really does just boil down to listening and, you know, setting up, you know, to be able to work, everyone gets, uh, you know, of course people have, like, gear fascinations and whatnot, and, man, you know, that piece of gear or that Fairchild or whatever you spent $20,000 on sitting on a desk, it doesn't, music doesn't just come out of it. It doesn't do anything, you know? It's, it's definitely how you steer the ship. It's not the ship. And yeah. so, you know, your most important asset in any studio is going to be your monitoring because it's your window on that world of manipulating that you're about to pursue. And so, of course, the way you set up your monitoring correctly is knowing how to listen and what to listen for and know that it's right. Like, you know, people who have to rely on, like, the strict German acoustician with their measurement microphone and everything probably can't mix cement, never mind a record, you know? Like, setting up a speaker... (laughs) I can do it in about 10 minutes with, guess what? My ears. <laughs> yeah. And the mono switch. <laughs> the mono switch is the most uh, important thing to have on your console, actually. Well, that, I, I had a question that I was going to drop on you later that was, I feel like you just answered, um, which is like, not everybody can have amazing gear like you were just talking about. For the kid that's in like Wyoming that wants to master records in a small town, is monitoring the most important thing you could, you could focus on? Clearly. Yeah, that's what I figured. Got to start there. <laughs> yeah, listening and monitoring. In fact, including when uh, when I uh, opened the bakery and started building it, and it was an empty room. Which, well, I hear you have uh, firsthand knowledge of right now. <laughs> I, ha- I have an empty room just over there. <laughs> yep. <laughs> the very first thing that went into the studio. Before even the woods, which uh, to make the big platforms that we have, 
for the people who don't know out there, I took over a screening room. So the floor is, uh, you know, it was stadium like movie theater seating. So the floor is angled the way that it's more like a studio now is we took out all the chairs and we built two massive platforms on two different elevations. So it looks like a gigantic staircase, right? And so the second floor is like where all the clients are and the first floor is where all I am and all my gear is. And then uh, the bottom floor, I guess you could t say, in front of the screen is where the speakers are. Um, but before I even built those platforms or anything, uh, when the room was cleared out of all the chairs and everything, the first thing in the room were the speakers. I uh, ratchet strapped the speakers to some janky uh, speaker stands, which were like three foot. So I knew they were in the ballpark. And at one point, I think I was putting books underneath to jack them up, you know, to the right height. And I was just sliding them around on the carpet with extension cords for power and two XLRs going directly into each speaker from one benchmark deck. And I was just playing stuff that I knew and I was sliding the speakers around until I found where they sounded best and sounded right to me. And then marked off those positions and the entire room was built around, well, the speakers are gonna be here, which means my ass is gonna be here. And now we have to build everything else around my ass. <laughs> <laughs> so if that doesn't prove the importance of monitoring and that's where you start, I don't know what does. I think everybody that has had a chance to start with nothing in a room and move the speakers around, like uh, my, my old studio in North Hollywood, we had the speakers where we liked them. We had a little console in there and it sounded great. We were really digging it. But we got this uh, Pergo fake hardwood floor from like a set, you know, that was like left over. Mm -hmm. And so we decided like, let's just put this down, you know, put the floor down up until like the console, like far enough that we didn't have to move anything, right? And so then it came time to like move the console onto the finished floor, move the speakers onto the finished floor, and then, you know, finish the finish board the, the room. The back, yeah. Yeah. And so then we put it back, put everything back like where we thought it was. And man, it sounded, it sounded so bad. Like awful. <laughs> like we sat there and almost cried. And we just like, we're looking at each other. We're like, shit, is the, is, did the floor do this? Did the floor do this? The floor can't do it. And like we were like looking at, one of us had a photo of before we put the floor down and I was looking at where the shadow of the console was on the wall and I was looking at where the shadow of the console was on the wall now. And I was like, told my friend Corey, I was like, dude, I think, I think we're off. And we, we just moved it back. Like, I mean, we're talking like an inch. Game changer. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's, it's crazy. People should move their speakers around before you start mixing. Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, when you're Big setting time. up your room. But um, so was there, was there acoustic, I, I guess it was, a fairly treated room than if it was a yeah. a screening room, right? So it was yeah, all exactly. fine in that sense. You just had to find yeah, the right um, place for everything. And, you know, it benefits from mainly two things. It, it, the biggest benefit is it's just a massive room. Um, I mean, it it's a big, certainly a big room for a mastering studio. It In fact, it may be, I don't know, maybe I, ha I have the biggest mastering studio on the planet. It's, it's... <laughs> I mean, it's got to be close, if not a little bigger than Ludwig's. You know, Ludwig has a massive room that as well. That room's big. Yeah. Um, but, you know, the, those two rooms are pretty on par with each other in terms of size. So it's a big room. And so, the, of course, the acoustic benefit of that is 
there's no standing waves or anything. It's so damn big. Even your lowest frequencies on your, your speakers, like, they get produced, and it's like you can watch them go straight past you and then keep going, you know? It's uh, nothing builds up in the room <laughs> because it's not, you know, like your stereotypical-sized studio control room, like a Studio B at Capitol, you know? So. Right. Okay, so we've kind of started talking about the bakery, but let's talk about the inception of it. I remember, I think, actually scary enough, the last time I saw you in person, you were like buying gear at Vintage King for the bakery. Oh, I, I forgot about that. Yeah, totally. That's I know. And I was yeah. like, oh, that that's Eric. They used to work at Capitol. And little did I know you were just building a massive epic studio. <laughs> but um, well, so well, it, it, I probably like had a at that stage, wasn't blinking either, so I might have looked a little bit crazy. I mean, uh, <laughs> building a studio from scratch and, you know, having my first business and everything, it's its all very intimidating things and a lot of money. Oh, and man. You, uh, you know, you wonder if you're going to survive. It's, it's very scary. And for anyone out there who's, you know, at that stage where they're thinking about going out on their own, building a studio, whatever, you know, I've had a few friends who have uh, recently done this too, and they've all asked my advice on, you know, what to do, when's the right time. Usually people always ask, like, when's, when's the right time to do something like this, or when will I know? And <laughs> there's a very clear answer to this, which is you're never going to know. Uh, all, you, all you're doing is you're diving off of that diving board and you're hoping that there's water at the end because that's the only thing you can do. Yeah. No, it's, it is frightening. I remember when I went completely out of my own, I had like one record booked. I was mixing one record. And I was like, all right, cool. Let's see what happens after that. <laughs> was it, um, it's so much more fulfilling <laughs> though, don't you think? Oh, it, completely. 100%. Yeah, it's just like... Yeah, it's it's tough to be working for yourself and, you know, having control of your life or, you know, whatever, or deciding to lose control of your life. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, it, it's it's funny, too, because a lot of people think, you know, especially when they're employees or something like, oh, man, can't wait to be the boss and own my own place and not have someone telling me what to do or anything like that. Let me tell you, owning your own place is so much worse because instead of having a boss, you have this thing called your conscious. And you you're wake up in the middle of the night and that conscience is still talking to you saying, like, why aren't you working right now? <laughs> you're you're going to go out of business. You're going to die. <laughs> I would take a boss over that any day. Totally. Well, speaking of boss, I mean, I know you have, you have what, three employees now. Did you find it difficult to become a manager boss or well uh, you first of all we're a pretty darn small company but i mean i've just got the best team so it makes it really easy like and two of which so jack galindo and james carino both came from the mastering lab as well we both worked together um so okay. we already had a rapport but yeah, i mean it was so funny back in mastering lab days there was just there were a lot of contentious uh, characters at that place, and Doug wasn't very good at facilitating the drama. And there was so much unnecessary drama there; it was absolutely unbelievable. Looking back, and you know, we opened the bakery, and I mean, I swear to God, we four of us have never had one issue—like not one. That's amazing. It shouldn't be that hard. 
No, when you find the when you find people that fit with you know however you work and it, it's like finding a good team. It, you know, everybody's just a little bit better. I'm sure you guys can all help each other out if yeah if you need something. And you know if if people don't fit into the especially in a small group of people like that, if people don't fit in, it's it's a pretty gnarly wrench in the cog, you know. Right. It sticks out. But um, yeah, we do, and you know, we all have you know mutual aid that goes on at at uh, <laughs> at the bakery. I mean, normally with with my workload, it'll be Jet backing me up or Peter doing my cutting or something like that. Um, and you know, a lot of times with the revisions and stuff like that, that can load up your your plate very quickly. And so Jet oh, yeah. will do a lot of my. Re- uh, revisions and whatnot, and no one really knows that. But it's not like it's an expectation that you know I'm doing every single thing either. But you know, at the same extent, like when they're loaded up and everything, I do their stuff too. And it, it yeah. was funny. Jet was on vacation. And one of her clients, like I, I suppose, somehow figured out that she was like in the Philippines, and she's like, "How the hell did you finish all those revisions from there?" And she's like, "Oh wait, did Eric do this?" <laughs> And she's like, yep. <laughs> she's like, wow, you, you get your boss to do your fixes. <laughs> she's like, that's how we work. That's teamwork, though. Yeah, yeah. No, that, that's, that's how it goes. That's awesome. That's how you have a good a good business, and that's how you keep clients coming back and keep yeah. everybody happy. Do you have any thoughts for somebody, like you mentioned, who's going to start a business that requires a significant investment up front or a significant... You know, obviously there's fear in starting any business, but what do you tell to somebody that is afraid to make an investment in themselves like that? Well, like I said, you're going to be afraid. It, you, you are, at one point, you have to just jump off the cliff. And <laughs> typically, anyone who's at the point of really considering jumping off the cliff, it's because you're going to do just fine totally. diving in, in, into the pool. But... um the main thing in the, the initial startup of the business and whatnot is, uh, you know, it's probably going to be true of most of the musicians out there. We all don't have our MBAs from Harvard, so <laughs> I'm assuming. So uh, there's a lot of intimidating things in setting up a corporation and all of these things. Google is obviously a very friendly resource for figuring out all of that crap, but you know, there's one aspect like, and you know, there's so many like business managers and accountants and lawyers out there who, you know, will sell their services to like set up your business correctly and everything. The thing that I've learned is no one has any clue of how to do things perfectly. Like your accountant doesn't even know how to make sure that your taxes are perfect. It, this, it's so complex and different for every single business that you're guaranteed to make mistakes. So with that understanding, the way that I jumped off the cliff was I just said, fuck it. And you just do it and you make mistakes. And you know what? If there's money and clients coming in the door, you're going to be in a great situation to correct those mistakes later. And that is so much better of a method that will take so much more stress off of you than worrying about every little thing before you go and do it, because what's going to end up happening is you're stressing yourself out over everything. It's going to take you 10 times the amount of time as a result, because you're there nitpicking every single article. And then 
five years later, you're going to find out that you fucked everything up anyway. <laughs> or that you forgot to do it. You just forgot yeah, to yeah, start. that too. <laughs> That's another yeah. uh, common mistake. Oh, yeah. whoops, I mean, you, you need the, a license? <laughs> <laughs> the, the idea of like perfection is like, it's just such a crutch for people. I mean, creatives oh, yeah. in particular, I fight with perfection all the time. And even in like things like you're talking about, like business stuff of like, well, I want to have the perfect way to keep my books. So I'm going to try this and this <laughs> and this. And then I want to have the perfect way to do this. And like, in the end, it's like, I, I waste all this time. Just yeah. what? Keeping my books, quote, perfectly, just so I can find out a tax season I ruined it anyway. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, but yeah, and I think, and the, the other thing you said that I wanted to highlight is that I think you're completely right in the fact that if you're the type of person that is thinking about jumping off one of these cliffs and like making a big move, that you are ready. Like it's, you know, you're nervous about it, but you wouldn't be thinking about it if you actually weren't ready you would be looking for another job or another learning opportunity. But when you have that fear, like you just have to kind of dive into it because that's that's when you are ready is when you're like, I think I want to do this. I think I want to do this. So, oh, I mean, absolutely. I think that was a great You, you, you conjured there. up also um, when I first saw the space we're in at Sony. And so um, the executive vice president of the lot over there he was the one who came up with the idea of this underutilized screening room. So the story behind it, we're, we're in a hallway with uh, six screening rooms and my room is the smallest one. And in fact, the screen, so it had three things against it. A, it was the smallest one. Um, so most people wouldn't use it. B, the screen is kind of an awkward size because it was originally meant for uh, uh, the movies that were meant for TV, like, made-for-TV movies, that sort of thing, where they were even oh. shot on film. And so, you know, it's not exactly a three-by-two screen, but it's not. It's certainly not, you know, your typical movie screen. And then it was only film projection. So, I mean, you can imagine how fast that went out with technology. So this room literally wasn't being used for anything. I think the most use that they got out of it was the HR department would use it for an orientation place for new employees coming in where like they got their handbooks. <laughs> and um, <laughs> literally when we, when we took uh, everything out of the room, I was finding old employee handbooks like stashed in like corners and stuff. It was hilarious. That's awesome. Uh, but just anyway, leave them under their chair. Yeah, exactly. And uh, so when I first saw it, I walk in the room and I get halfway down and it's this massive gorgeous room you know it's like old hollywood uh you, you know you can just see like you know irving thalberg in there with a cigar going like murmur <laughs> but um <laughs> i i go down there and i'm the first one in the door and i'm just thinking to myself eric what the fuck did you do oh my god and then i hear tommy the evp behind me so what do you think of it son and I just was like, okay, compose yourself, Eric. Don't let him see your face. And I turned around and I was like, hmm, it can work. <laughs> <laughs> Biggest bluff ever. Uh, but like right after that meeting, I went to my buddy, uh, Brian Carr, who was kind of responsible for getting me in touch with all these people uh, loosely, him and Adam Michalak. And um, so I went over to Brian just to be like, uh, dude, I don't know what I did. I don't know if I'll be able to handle this. This, I mean, this it's all crazy and everything. I was like, and I just came up with, I was like, you know what? 
I'll just keep on going and keep on doing this until someone tells me no. And that was just kind of how you have to go with things. But it yeah, worked out and when the, the stakes are high, you, you play your best, you know? It's like when you have a lot on the line, then uh, you, you kind of have to, you have to make it work. You have to succeed. So it's oh, like, absolutely. you know, built-in drive. Yeah. Um, I had two, two things that I wanted to nerd yeah. out on before we go. <laughs> okay. Let's um, nerd. One was um, I wanted to talk about mastered for iTunes and in that process because I know you were involved in the beginning of that. How did that come about, and you know what was that process like to be working on a project like that? Um, it it was a really insightful, uh, great opportunity and everything. How it came about was absolutely hilarious, and it's all owed to my upbringing in New Jersey. As we do have the the reputation of being a bit harsh at times and blunt, and that's for good reason. We are. And um, so what had happened was Apple had just upped their M4As to 256. And leading up to that time, you know, a lot of professionals and, you know, they didn't have the best uh, rep in the professional world because... Sound quality wasn't great. You know, they were very sharkish, all of that. And so for whatever reason, Apple took it upon themselves to, when they uh, doubled their bit rate and everything, they thought this was going to be the time to go to the professional community and brag about how they're trying to do things better for us and whatnot. I mean, it obviously that bit rate is kind of a drop in the bucket, but... So they were going around right. to all the major studios, and the original connection was I was working on Colby Calais, I think, third album. Yes, third album. It was titled All of You. Wow, can't believe I actually remembered something. Like, Props. don't remember what I had for lunch. Um, but Colby is such a good friend, so I guess uh, uh, that's uh, why I at least remember that. And so <laughs> she and you know her dad, Ken Clay, we're working at the village when these guys came by and they started uh, giving them the the technical speak and everything. And Colby, like, she's kind of the type of artist that when she's done with vocals, like, she doesn't want to hear about it. Like, she's just like, make this work. And then Ken is kind of nerdy, but then I guess he fell asleep. He's like, I don't know what you're talking about. He's like, talk to my engineer. Here's his number. So, you know, in Ojai just randomly get a call from Apple. And this lady's like, yes, uh, this person would like to speak with you. And I'm like, okay, I'm here. And she's like, well, we got to schedule the phone call. I'm like, you called me, right? And she's like, <laughs> would you be free? At, it was something like 127. It was like some specific exact oh microsecond, right? And... I think it was like a Tuesday and she's like next Thursday. So this was like a week and a few days at an exact microsecond. And I was just like, oh my God. Yeah, whatever. And I hung up the phone, totally forgot about it. And you know, the Thursday at let's say 127 or whatever, uh, James, who's our studio manager now and was at the mastering lab as well. He comes into the room. He's like, Eric, you have a call from Apple. And I was like, and I, then I remember it, and I looked down at my watch, and it's 127, and I was like, 
Oh, fuck me. Okay. And pick up the phone, and it's Robert Kondrick, who's um, extremely high up over there. And um, I didn't know who he was or anything. And he starts explaining to me about how, you know, they're trying to have a better impression, blah, blah, blah. And will you do some listening or whatever? And I just kind of lost it. I was like in the middle of a project. This seemed like a complete BS conversation that we were having. And I was already frustrated about this whole scheduling thing. Right. And so I just cut him <laughs> off and I was like, if you want to be a professional format, you've got to be, you've got to act like one. I'm like, I don't know why I send masters and it sounds completely different by the time it gets up there. We need referencing. We need to do. And by the way, I'm like, why are you ripping from CDs? I'm like, you should be taking in wave files and using the higher bit rates. And I like laid out, just laid into him. And at the end of my rant, he was like, okay, I can do that. We'll be in touch. Hangs up. Next morning I get in, there's a phone call from the chief engineer of Core Audio and a 12-page white paper on basically, like, he must have been recording the call. And, like, my whole, like, in order of my rant was, like, everything starting to line up in engineering terms of how they're going to go and implement this. And I was like, get on the call with this chief engineer and we're kind of nerding out over, like, uh, because he has a bunch of people who went to Carnegie Mellon as well on his uh, team. And he looked me up. And uh, so we were talking. I was like, okay, what the hell's going on here? And who the hell was I talking to? And he's like, oh, that was Robert Kondrak. He's number two under Steve Jobs. I was like, oh, right. <laughs> so like, the whole way that it got started was I mouthed off to, like, the right person. <laughs> and so then we actually started working on it. And, you know, the... There really was, Mastered for iTunes, uh, you know, they coined that term, too. Well, like, trust me, we were, we were not using that term at all for a long time before, you know, they started their marketing routine. Um, but um, the only thing that it did was it shifted the entire industry from using the CD master as, like, the asset, like, labels and their distribution channels using strictly a CD master as the asset to being able to actually properly handle wave files as the ingest. I know this sounds so stupid because it's so damn simple and it's not like the technology didn't exist. I mean, it, it's actually harder to do it from a DDP. Like, I don't understand what they were thinking even, but that was <laughs> the, you know, the scenario of the entire industry at the time. Like, that's just what was done. And so um, I remember specifically with uh, Colby's album, which was the first one, uh, because we were working on all of this, the thing that was hilarious was, of course, I had to upload directly to Apple because the record label didn't have anything in place to accept just the WAV files and then get it into the Apple system, right? And so, uh. you know, Obviously, this was the first one, so it was a special case, and that's why they were, like, white-gloving it. But then the Universal Legal Team caught wind of this, and I'm, like, waking up to, like, 40 emails from, like, big lawyers and everything being like, this is a breach of contract, and, you know, Colby Clay's now in trouble and all of this. And I was like, holy shit, what is going on? And, um, oh, I am... And, my memory was so good up until this point. I totally forgot who uh, the head of uh, Universal Republic is. 
well, him, I forget his name. I'm sorry. But um, he, he gets right on and he's like, I know about this, like stand down basically. And so then what we ended Thank up, God. what we ended up doing was absolutely ridiculous and hilarious, but I had to put, make a CD, you know, a physical CD master, and I hand wrote on it, like, Kobe Clay, all of you, Apple Music Master, and had to mail it to the label. And that, like, figuratively was the thing that the, con- you know, so the, they wouldn't be in breach of contract because we delivered. That fulfilled the paperwork. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Oh, you wow. know, But the actual thing that's up there on iTunes was what was directly delivered by me to Apple. <laughs> I mean, it, it was, so, that, you know, this was, this was really what Master for iTunes did was, you know, it was cutting that red tape and just changing the industry for what was, I would say, completely obvious, but um, it just wasn't being done then. So, like, that's the real achievement of Master for iTunes because now, ever since that point, you know, you, you send in the WAV file you want to send in. Like, there's so few times where I'm even making a DDP master anymore. It's just not even requested. Oh, yeah. I mean, no one's making, for the most part, there's so few CDs that are even being made, so. Yeah, for our listeners, DDPs generate CDs. That's fascinating. That's interesting that, yeah, I think about how that, that kind of changed everything. That's kind of started to change the, like, kind of the, the loudness of things as well, too, right? Because wasn't there an aspect of it that was based on, you know, having a, a clean decode? Uh, yeah, there was that, too. To combat, you know, the artifacts that can go into from inner sample clipping. Um, and right. so that was part of the tool set that we developed. But of course, that's only important for lossy compression. Uh, so, you know, when as we morph into lossless, that's not even going to be an issue. But it's uh, but yeah, that was part of the tool set. And that was, you know, one thing we had developed because that was the aspect of of being able to properly reference everything so you know what would be on you know basically that that was like my first complaint was like whenever you send send it to master you have no idea how it's ending up on apple and why it sounds like that like what happened in between point a and point b right right so the the tool set was to combat that by having you know while you're working on the album be able to know exactly what it's going to sound like manipulate it if you like if you so choose, and then you have the method of being able to actually deliver the exact same uh, master to the label and then onto Apple and have it encoded exactly the same way. And when it ends up on that store, it's sounding like exactly what you made. Right. Well, question for you, what's your opinion on mastering with the end format in mind? Like, do you think about how something's going to translate over to Spotify while you're mastering? Or are you more of the type of like, I'm going to make the sound as great as possible. And what happens on Spotify is what happens on Spotify. What happens on Apple Music is what happens on Apple Music. Yeah, um, I would fit the category of your your prior statement. Uh, sorry, sorry, your last statement, but not exactly for that reason. It's more, you know, you can, you just start driving yourself to drink in that regard, if you start formatting for every little specific thing, when, you know, there's definitely diminishing returns of that time investment versus 
what you're doing. And also the biggest thing with that is, you know, maybe if it was an indie release or something like that, where you'd have direct control over the aggregators, maybe, but a record label, I wouldn't trust them as far as I could throw my car to be able to send the right master to the right platform. There's no way in hell they'd do that right. That is, uh, yes, that is, that is true. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I agree. Especially now, like with, you know, everybody trying to lean towards lossless, we're going to get back to waves. People are going to start listening to, yeah, you know, high-quality audio again. Yeah. And it's going to be amazing. I've been listening to Apple Music lossless for the last couple of weeks, and it's just so refreshing. I love Spotify's algorithm, and I love their interface, but I just, it's nice to hear full-quality audio again, you know? Yeah. So. Definitely. All right, I've got two questions that I close the show with. I've added one. I don't know. I was about to say, <laughs> yeah. Every yeah. time you bring this uh, yeah, up, it's still two questions. <laughs> I know. It's two questions constantly. I always have two <laughs> yeah. more questions written. That's why we're going to be here forever. Uh, so the first question that I'm I'm ending all the shows with now is: um, Is there a time in your career when you chose to redefine what success meant to you? Uh, no. <laughs> no. <laughs> um, I, I mean, the, the best part about, I suppose, um, our field and just in general getting to work in music is uh, that's success in and of itself. I mean, true. every day, like, it, it's just not work. Like, you were literally getting paid to listen to music. It's ridiculous when you think of it. And it so, um, you know, that... That, to me, I suppose, would be the threshold of success is where you can make a living off of just doing this. It's really hilarious to me. <laughs> it, it, as hilarious as it is, it is challenging. You know, it, it, is, it can be exhausting and can wear you down. But, oh, but yeah, in the end, you're, you're talking about playing music or listening to music. Yeah, I, I get asked so many times by uh, friends or people who have nothing to do with music, and they're like, oh, well, what do you listen to when you go uh, go home or you're in the car? And I'm like, NPR. And they're like, no, I mean music. I'm like, no, I don't listen to music at home. And they're like, wow, that's so depressing. Like your, your industry really has you that jaded and everything. I'm like, no, you are so misunderstanding this. It's not even funny. I get <laughs> to, for eight hours a day, listen to music and get paid for it. But by the time I go home, I kind of want to do something else. That's all. But you're missing the fact that I get to do this every day. And it's always new stuff. Yeah, exactly. It's, um, yeah, some people think that, you know, working in music, like, ruins music for you. But no, nah, it's, it's a reward, it's you know. It's exactly the opposite. <laughs> yeah, it's exactly the opposite. All right, so last question of the day, um, which, you know, it's been my question for every show is uh, what right now is your biggest goal and what is the next smallest step you're going to take to go towards it? Well, I suppose I can uh, come out a little bit early with this. It's still in the works, but um, uh, I guess this is the first public time I'm admitting to this, but I am uh, knee-deep in opening a vinyl pressing plant. Oh. Yeah. Epic. <laughs> yeah. That's awesome. So it's a Very bit of cool. a moonshot, but... Uh, you know, if anyone's following along with, I mean, the vinyl resurgence is uh, still going strong. And and it's to the point now that uh, all the pressing plants, uh, it's literally like nine-month lead times for oh, it's crazy. getting it's stuff pressed. Uh, yeah, and it's because, of course, the demand 
uh, the demand out has outdone the supply capacity. Like that was years ago when that happened. Like there's just basically been nothing to offset this. So I, I can't get into the exact specifics of the arrangement, but uh, it's going to be rather big. Awesome. That's very cool. Is it, uh, is it a far way away? Uh, say? Probably within the year. I, that I'd is say, a, that, I'd say we're, that's we're, a goal right there. Yeah, we're, we're well, okay, there, there you go. My goal is uh, in a year, it's, it's going to be like actually operational and, you know, it should be well oiled by that point. Amazing, man. That, that is a, that's an impressive one. I'm, it's props on that move. That's, that's big. Thank you. So, yeah, cool. Dude, I've enjoyed this so much. I'll let you uh, have your Saturday back. Um, and hopefully we didn't nerd out too, <laughs> oh, too I'm much going for to people. Work, but so. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, are you working six days a week, seven days a week? Come on, man. Sometimes. You gotta have a day off. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, dude, thank you so much. Uh, do you want to tell people where they can find the bakery on the internet or you or... Um, yeah, sure. You can find everything at... Uh, TheBakery.LA. It's not .com. It's .LA because we're in Los Angeles. And um, our social handles are just Bakery Mastering. And yeah, if uh, any of you are out there and want to see the studio or anything, drop us a line. And now it's great to have guests. So Awesome. Cool, dude. Well, thank you for uh, for. No, thank you. Out. This was Enjoyed fun. It. So that's a wrap on episode 43. Thanks to Eric for taking the time to hang out. Be sure to check out his work at the bakery website. And as for all of you, thank you for listening. As always, you know I appreciate your time. If you've been enjoying the show, please drop a review if you haven't already, or maybe consider sharing it with a friend. Both of those things are huge for me. Also, special thanks to our new Patreon supporters. I considered thanking you all by name, but I don't know if you'd want that to live in perpetuity on the internet. So you know who you are. Thanks for the support. And finally, for those of you who have listened this far 42 previous times, you know what's coming. Don't forget to join us over at completeproducer.net. It's an amazing community. So get in there and I'll see you next week.